Hello and welcome back to the Royal Horticultural Society's Gardening Podcast. As the summer holidays get into full swing, the gardens here at Wisley in Surrey are teeming with visitors enjoying the fine weather, stunning plants and exciting events and activities. More details of those later in the podcast. I'm Guy Barter. I'm Chief Horticulturist here at the RHS and I give gardening advice and expertise to anyone who'll listen round the RHS and beyond. If you've listened before, you'll already know that these podcasts are made by people who love plants, for people who love plants. If you're a new listener, welcome. You'll find that each episode is packed with features and discussions about a wide range of horticultural topics and practical seasonal advice. So, whether you're a veteran gardener or new to the world of plants, you'll find something of interest. Coming up today. Most people consider them the arch-villains of the gardening world. But could some slugs actually be good for your garden? Expert entomologists reveal the truth about this much-loathed pest. Botanist James Armitage continues his exploration of the more weird and wonderful specimens in Wisley's plant collections, plus summer fun. We bring you foolproof ways to entertain the family at RHS garden events across the UK. But first, question time. RHS members can put their gardening questions to our expert advice team for free by phone, post or email, or any visitor can talk to us in person at RHS Flower Shows. Each month on this podcast, some of our advisors get together to discuss some of the queries we've received in the past few weeks. So, what issues have been on gardeners' minds recently? Hello, I'm Lee Hunts, the Principal Horticultural Advisor here at RHS Garden Wisley. I'm with my colleagues, I've got fellow advisor Jenny Bowden Hello. and also Becky Mealy. Hiya! Rebecca Stokes from York has emailed in. In the absence of peat, can you please suggest something I can add to the soil to make it open and easily workable? I do not wish to add sand as the ground is not very clayey. My friend suggested spent mushroom compost. Would this be a possibility? Is there anything better? Yeah, we, we don't normally recommend adding sand um, to to the soil um, because the particles can be very, very fine and they can actually block up um, the, the, the existing pores within the soil and make the, exacerbate the problem. Um, some people like to add grit, but the reason that grit is not that practical is, is the amount that you would have to add to make any difference at all. You would actually have to add one part grit to one part native soil, so it's a half and half in effect, um, which is usually just impractical for most people and quite expensive as well. So in order to get a nice soil structure and to have the porosity in the soil, we, we would recommend the organic matter. And obviously peat isn't, isn't really possible now um, uh, because of ecological reasons, digging up peat beds, it's just not something that's sustainable. So we would encourage people to use possibly spent mushroom compost. As Becky says, it can have a lot of chalk in it. So you do need to know what your pH is. If you've got a very acid soil, then that wouldn't be a problem. Um, but if you've got alkaline soil, you might prefer to stick more to, well, leaf mould would be good, although that's quite low in nutrients. Um, but your own garden compost or well-rotted stable manure would do the job very well. We've got an email here from L Pearson in London. Um, who says they've got apple tree dieback. The ends of almost all my apple tree branches turned brown and died this year very dramatically. There's a woolly white deposit on some of the branches around where they've withered. What's attacking my tree? 
There could be two things going on. There could be a couple of things going on here. So there could be blossom blight, which has caused the blossom to die, and then the the actual twig blight then to die back on the tips. And then the actual woolly deposit could then be woolly aphids attacking the actual tree. Helpfully, Elle Pearson has sent a photograph with their question. And uh, so... We've got some. We've got some hints, Becky. What do you think from looking at the photograph that we've got here? Oh, so that's that's clean characteristics of um, blossom wilt. So you can see that the actual dieback has started from the actual where the blossom was, and then travelled along the actual stem. Um, so all the leaves are all brown and crispy, um, and the blossom has completely been decimated. And you can see it's travelling al- along the stem and into the actual tree. No, it's, it's something we usually say to people, cut those sections out, because when the uh, disease goes back into the stem, it causes a canker and it causes it, the tissue to girdle. So the um, sap can't get from one end of the branch to the other. So basically that's why that bit dies, because there is no sap supply. Um, and you just cut that out back to a nice healthy shoot leaf. Basically, you're getting rid of that dead bit. We've had quite a bad year this year for um, apples getting this. It's something we would normally associate with cherries as being particularly problematic, flowering cherries as much as um, fruiting cherries. But apples are not immune, and they've certainly had a bout of it this year. But you do tend to see those patches all over the plant, and by cutting it out, you clean it up. They also mentioned woolly aphids as well. Yeah, so the woolly aphids, you find what happens is as the aphid feeds, it makes the bark all become all gnarly and you'll see them all in their little nooks and crannies and it makes it quite, it's quite makes the apple quite unsightly. Um, you, you tend to get it more on espalier um, apples because they're up, up against the wall and they've got you know more places to hide and shelter. I tend to use a hose pipe. <laughs> to, to to wash them off quite a nice jet of of water will see them off but the only problem is you have to keep doing it because they're they're quite persistent and they they do come back and they do make they make they make the base of the plant which is where i've i've got it on my espalier just where the graft is of my espalier apple tree and they make it very very lumpy but it's quite satisfying when you do initially wash them off but not so good when you notice that they've all come back again but there aren't any chemicals that you can use to control um woolly they look a bit like mealybugs that you get on indoor house plants so it's very um white fluffy stuff basically that's that is the easiest way to to describe it just white fluff and if you were to poke at it orange orange gunge comes out and people oh it's it's orange so it's quite it's quite dramatic um but physical removal is the only thing that you can do to control it um it's a shame really yeah you can get a little bit of a scrubbing brush and have a little scrub as well and then jet them off as well and then also winter washes help prevent anything hiding in the nooks and crannies so winter wash is applied october november after leaf has fallen after you've done your prune and it's um kind of like a a fat it used to be a, a quite nice carcinogenic thing that they used to but it's now been you know reformed and it's more of a fish oil and it just gets all into nooks and crannies and anything that's overwintering that shouldn't be there kind of and you would spray this on um, and spray it all around the actual tree it's a bit of a mixture it's a bit of a double-edged sword though isn't it because you might be getting rid of those but there are actually more goodies there are more goodies than there are baddies and so it's i don't know you've got to kind of weigh up um you know whether it's worth it yeah absolutely 
So Peggy Green's written in, and my fence and the climbers attached were badly damaged in the recent storms. How can I protect my boundaries against future winds? And should I cut the clematis armandii and dogwoods back to let them grow up the replacement fence? They are too big to try and reattach in their entirety. So that's a shame, isn't it? It's horrible when anything in your garden gets destroyed by natural phenomenons. Now, recently, we saw actually an example of this type of fencing on the climate change garden at Chatsworth Flower Show. Uh, This is because in the future, we're expecting stronger winds at unpredictable times of year as the weather becomes more erratic. Now, that fence basically was a bit like a Venetian blind, in effect, uh, where you've got slats and the wind could go through the middle. By the time you've got plants on it, it didn't become particularly see-through. So if you're worried about seeing the neighbours, it gave a certain amount of privacy. But you could also consider alternating these panels as well so that the wind can get through and get across the gardens, uh, including your neighbour's garden, without causing so much damage. I think in terms of dealing with the plants, we'll ask Jenny what she would do if she found, came, I presume this lady's come home and found the uh, plants and fence in a pile on the floor. <laughs> oh, it's very depressing, isn't it? Um, well, I'm not, not quite sure about the dogwood because it's not normally a, a climber, but it sounds like there's been some sort of damage to it uh, anyway. It's normally a shrub, um, which would be quite happy to be cut down I'm and won- it will grow up again. I'm wondering actually if she meant a rose, as in a, a dog rose. Okay, in that case, that would also be happy to be cut back and it would start again with no problem at all. The Clematis armandii is is less happy to be cut back to a very low low point, especially if it's a, a more mature one. They they're a bit reluctant to come back. So uh, by all means, you could you could try it as an experiment, but I'd be less happy about that um, than a rose. Um, you could consider having a hedge instead of a fence. That's going to give you the porosity. I think that's the right word, really, the um, less wind resistance. Obviously, the wind can pass right through um, because you're looking for about half of the wind to be able to come through whatever structure it is you have, so 50 to 60%, which a hedge would certainly do. And um, a nice low-maintenance hedge or low-maintenance in terms of... Uh, tolerates a wide range of conditions would be perhaps Eliagnus and Hawthorn is another one. Um, Eliagnus is an evergreen shrub uh, that grows pretty much as big as you let it, very very adaptable to being pruned, uh, doesn't mind at all, perfect and Hawthorn obviously fits in well if you live in a more rural area and uh, likes to be well you see it along the dividing fields so it's obviously used to very windy conditions and so that would also be um, a possibility. There are plenty of other suggestions on our webpage um, on windbreaks and shelter belts. So if you just go to Google and RHS windbreaks and shelter belts, there are plenty more suggestions. You could um, make have an insurance policy with the clematis and take cuttings, and then hopefully, you know, if the main plant doesn't come back, you could then got cuttings of the clematis to come back. So ideally just as as more pieces stem take the make the main cutting at the leaf node and then put it into the leaf node is where the actual leaves come from the actual stem so break them off nice clean cut with a um either a razor or a sharp knife and then into some um, potting compost mix ideally not too big a cutting because the more surface area of the the leaves the, the more likely they're not to succeed um, but i think we have actually got a web profile on our website of taking cuttings from climbers 
So that's quite a good um, thing for tips. Back to the clematis armander. My mum's hacked hers back before and it's come back. I have seen them resurrect, so that, that this should be all right. That's reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that, Becky. <laughs> Julia McCarthy's got courgette trouble. I'm growing an F1 variety called Defender, as I've done for many years. I planted them out at the beginning of June as quite large plants, just beginning to flower in an area that had not been used for courgettes since 2013. Although we had a very dry May, the weather has since been quite wet. The plants initially were very productive, but about two weeks ago, some of them started to show signs of powdery mildew, which rapidly became severe. What's caused this? And is there anything that I can do? Sounds like a perfect storm, doesn't it? The dry conditions followed by wet conditions. That is just what powdery mildew loves. So it's an airborne fungus, uh, which just floats around looking for stressed plants. And uh, in this case, it's found your uh, your courgettes, Julia. Um, so yeah, any kind of root stress, possibly from usually from dry soil, will encourage it. To be honest, prevention is better than cure, uh, which isn't really much help at this point. Um, but we would be looking at um, products with, well, apart from making sure your plant is well watered all the way through the growing season, uh, there are there are products that you could that you could use which are based on fatty acids. And what they do is they actually um, place a barrier between the um, between the leaf and the spores, and it actually forms a barrier and prevents the spores from making contact and feeding off the cells in the leaf. So it's actually a physical action and a physical mode of action. And things like SB, Plant Invigorator, or there's a fairly new product on the market called Ecoeffective Plant Defender. Those are the kind of products based on fatty acids and soaps, um, which, as I say, ideally are there to prevent the problem in the first place. It's actually fairly difficult to go back and remedy it, mm. isn't it? Mm. I mean, could you... It, so I suppose you could give it a liquid feed and then remove the worst of the mm. leaves and see if you could coax it out and keep growing. Grow the, through it, The yeah. beauty of a courgette is that once it's once you've got it going, it, you know, it's keeping it going. Um, but, yeah, it, it's it's preventing the powdery mildew ideally before it comes in and in also digging in lots of compost into the soil um, to help retain the water um, and giving them, getting them that best start, really. I've actually stopped growing Defender because I've had a couple of duff years of it myself. So I've actually gone to grow Parador, which is a yellow courgette, and it's actually got quite a nice creamier texture to it. So that's quite a nice one for making courgette and for making you know, all your different salads and stuff. So another one to look out for is Venus, and that's got nice smooth stems and leaves so you don't get scratched as you're picking it because often I get all these scratches up my arms when I've been harvesting the courgettes. So we have an email here from Liz Foxton. Um, I've inherited an established wisteria which flowers beautifully in spring. I'm aware I need to summer prune it, but I don't quite know what this entails. Can you help, please? Uh, well, thankfully, yes. Uh, pruning a wisteria does seem to confuse people quite a lot. But when we get to uh, August and early September, now is the time to think about summer pruning. Now, uh, two things really with this. Uh, you will probably have an area in which you want to keep the wisteria. So I'm thinking there might be windows or the end of the fence or the top of the fence. All that stuff beyond it you won't need because you've got no room for it to flower beyond those areas. So cut off all those bits to start with. 
all the new growth that's left, i.e. within the area where you want the wisteria to be, then just shorten back those new shoots to about a foot, just cutting beyond a leaf. That's all you need to do in the summer because that's going to encourage the flower buds to form at the base of those shortened stems. Then when you come to winter, so we're talking December, January, early February, all those stems that you shortened, you'll need to shorten them again back to just two or three little buds at the base. You'll end up with a, just a tiny, uh, just a tiny little knobbly spur at the bottom. It's those little buds that you've left that will produce the flowers the following year. So it sounds potentially quite complicated because you've got to do it twice, but actually once you've done it once, it gets quite in a mould of just do it and it is kind of clip, clip, clip and you're, you're done. So um, it looks like there's a lot of growth at this time of year and what you're going to do with it. But get those kind of things or reduced within the size and then shorten back to foot and you're kind of there. The RHS Gardening Advice Team. Contact details for the team can be found on the advice pages of our website. There you can also find details of how you can become a member of the RHS so you can use our advisory service for free at any time of the year. One of the other benefits of joining the RHS is free access to our four gardens. Wisley here in Surrey, Harlow Carr in North Yorkshire, Rosemore in Devon and the stunning Hyde Hall in Essex. Here's a selection of what's coming up. If you weren't able to catch the exhibition of winning photographs from the RHS photographic competition at this year's Chelsea Flower Show, then fear not, as there's now a touring exhibition which will visit all the RHS gardens. It's at Harlow Carr on the 5th of August and running until the 25th. It's free with normal garden entry. Come on a guided walk. Gardening with bats in mind on the 11th of August at Hyde Hall, we'll show you a range of bat-friendly plants and discuss ways to encourage these lovely creatures into your garden. Booking is essential. RHS Garden Rosemore is hosting its first ever flower show on the 18th to 20th of August. Buy quality plants and specialist nurseries, hear talks from experts, and see fabulous floral displays, free with normal garden entry. And at Wisley, you can enjoy the tranquility of the garden in the evening with a special late opening event on the 11th of August between 6 and 9pm. The Wisley shop, plant centre and library will also be open. During the long school summer holidays, there's lots of special events and activities designed especially for the whole family to enjoy. Here's the events team to tell us more. Hello, I'm Alexis Pym. I'm the Education and Learning Manager here at RHS Garden Wisley and I'm joined today by Barnaby Millard, who is our Horticultural Educator. Hi Alexis. So we were going to chat today about what's coming up in the four RHS gardens. So we're really lucky. We've got a partnership project with the Enid Blyton Society for the 75 year anniversary of the Famous Five. And that means we've got a summer trail, which is a puzzle trail all about how Uncle Quentin discovered some robotic bees and he's disappeared. So the famous five, all the kids and the dog, are coming and solving lots of puzzles to find out what's happened to Uncle Quentin. For our younger explorers, we've also got a spotter guide and a picnic trail, and that happens across all four gardens right up until the 3rd of September. So really nice. But then at Wisley, we've got some really specialist activities, and Barney can talk about some of the things we're doing on Mondays and Tuesdays throughout the summer. Yeah, so every Monday and Tuesday through the summer we have Sow and Grow. So four out of the six days we will be sowing a seed. So this week um, we're actually sowing cress seeds. 
Um, and we've got lots more coming up, but we also are doing a couple of take a plant home. So we're doing an African violet leaf cutting um, and we're going to do planting up strawberry runners. So we'll have strawberries next summer, just in time for Wimbledon. So the idea is they're all preparing things that would go in their picnic baskets for when they're coming on their adventures. And then every Wednesday um, here at Wisley, we've also got either storytelling or music. And on Thursdays and Fridays, we always have some sort of craft activity. So it might be making your adventure hat or it might be weaving a Timmy the dog. Uh, and then on our weekends, we've got bigger scale activities. So they can be puppet shows or falconry displays or all sorts of different things. But also we're really lucky because we're joined by Barney, we can also chat about some of the things you could do in your garden over the summer. Yeah, so lots of fun things to do with kids in the garden during summer. Um, one of the best things is to go around and pick your favourite flowers and actually put together a nice bouquet so you can bring the best of your garden into the house. Um, and at the same time, you can plan which flowers you like the most so that maybe next year you can go out and maybe top up your garden with the flowers your kids enjoy. Um, other things you can do is for some of those flowers which are going over, things like cosmos and roses which repeat flower. Deadheading is a fun activity, going around with a little pair of, um, of scissors and snipping off those deadheads will encourage blooms all the way through the summer and into autumn. Um, other things you can do is you can get from watering pots. During the summer pots dry out very fast and kids do like to run around with watering cans so putting them to work on the pots is a good idea. And other things, if you've got a vegetable patch, nothing better than picking a carrot out of the ground and uh, giving a quick wash off and then just Definitely. munching it raw is one of the nicest things you can do in the garden. So lots to do this summer, whether it's at home in your own garden or any of the RHS gardens, right through from now until the 3rd of September. You can find full details of all these events and many more on our website. Go to rhs.org.uk slash event search. Now slugs, love them or loathe them? No, wait, no one loves a slug, do they? Slugs are the vegetable growers' nemesis. They're hated by hostel lovers. They lurk in beds and borders, burrowing underground to make sponges out of your potatoes and crunch through your carrots. Almost every year, slugs and snails top the RHS's poll of most problematic pests in the garden. But can they actually provide benefits in the garden? We spoke to slug expert, RHS entomologist Hayley Jones, to find out more about these surprisingly diverse creatures. There are 46 species of slug in Britain, and actually only about nine of them are definitely pests. The majority of them are either benign or actually could be considered helpful. So lots of the slugs prefer to eat rotting material. So the slugs that you find in your compost heap are probably actually being very helpful and helping to break down the plant material that you find there. Um, so they should definitely be left alone. Lots of slugs to, to the untrained eye, they might look very similar but there's a few main groups. Um, the first group that you probably have definitely seen are what are called the Aryan slugs, and they are also known as the round-backed slugs. So they're generally um, quite big, and they have very coarse tubercles, which are the kind of the wrinkly ridges on their backs. Um, the way that um, you can start to tell for sure what they are is that their breathing hole is near the front of their mantle, which is the kind of the saddle-shaped thing on their back. So if you have slugs that look like that, they belong to the Aryan family. And the biggest ones, the big red slug, it's actually called the large red slug, and the large black slug, and also some of the medium-sized ones, they prefer to eat rotting material, but they will eat plants. So they can be pests, but if there's enough kind of litter, um, leaf litter and other debris in your garden, then they might leave your plants alone. It's actually the biggest pests are probably some of the smaller species that aren't quite so visible. So some of the small Aryan species that look like 
how I described, but much smaller. Um, and also the ones that are called um, the field slug. So we have the, the netted field slug um, and also something that's amusingly called the tramp slug. So those ones are known to be pests, particularly in agriculture, but almost certainly in gardens as well. And then finally, we have the keeled slugs. Now, these are so called because they have a kind of a ridge along their back that looks like the keel of a boat and it runs all the way along their back. Now, these ones are usually quite small um, and dark coloured and they have this noticeable keel, but they spend the vast majority of their time underground and they only ever come up at night time to feed on your plants. And they're also the ones that feed underground on your potatoes. So they're kind of the biggest villains, but they often go unnoticed compared to the, the more visible slugs that actually aren't doing as much harm. One of the slugs that you might have seen before because it's very striking looking is the leopard slug or tiger slug. Now these have pale beigey bodies and then distinct black spots and stripes on them. And actually you can tell individuals, each one has a different pattern. So if you could uh, look at the ones, if you had them in your garden, you would be able to tell who was who. And they are mostly carnivorous and they will feed on other slugs. Um, and that is a, an argument for a, another argument against slug pellets, but also some of the other control measures is that they will affect all the slugs and snails in your garden and not necessarily the ones that are actually doing the damage. So what I'm hoping to do next is to try and explore uh, what species of slugs and snails there are in gardens and then to try and see which control methods might specifically target those that we don't want um, while doing less damage to those that could be helpful. So the RHS is trying to write a PhD project proposal um, and if that gets the go ahead then we'll have a student who will be doing a survey of gardens and then trying to get home gardeners to um, identify what slugs and snails are in their gardens and the student will help to verify that so that we can get a good picture of um, what slugs and snails there are in gardens and how that varies across the country. Dr Hayley Jones. As always, you can find out more about slugs and other common garden pests on the RHS website. Well, that's almost all we have time for in this edition. Before we go, however, we've just got time to hear the next fascinating plant portrait from RHS botanist James Armitage. Each month he reveals the remarkable stories behind some of the more unusual plants in Wisley's collections. There are some trees in the Wisley Pinetum that can't fail to command attention. The vast redwoods, Sequoia sempervirens and Sequoia dendron giganteum peering loftily over seven acres, the electric yellow mass of Thuya placata zebrina, and the congregation of Scots pine that grows by the river Way, their trunks glowing auburn and orange and pink in the changing light. But there is one tree, in its way as splendid and remarkable as any, that unless deliberately hunted for could pass entirely unnoticed. Planted more for shelter than ornament, and rather wedged in between other specimens, it stands at the periphery of things by a fence line, dark and shaggy like some bashful bear. It is the largest example of cross-cut Procypris leylandii nailers blue to be found in Britain and Ireland. With the exceptions of Japanese knotweed and giant hogweed, there can be no other plant name that strikes such a note of dread as Leyland cypress. Unruly, aggressive, antisocial, aesthetically bankrupt. The list of negative connotations that the ubiquitous leylandii invokes is a lengthy one. A fresh appraisal, however, might also find that these trees are misunderstood, misrepresented and misemployed. 
biological oddities of unmatched utilitarian value with origins that stretch deep into the Victorian era. Leyland cypress is a bigeneric hybrid. Horticulture can attest that crosses between relative species of plant are not unusual, but hybrids that involve plants belonging to different genera are much less common. The parents of cross cuprae cypress leylandii are Capressus macrocarpa, the Monterey cypress, and Xanthocypris nucatensis, the nuca cypress, both North American trees, but sufficiently different that their genetic compatibility might never have been suspected had not chance played a hand. The parent species seem to have met fruitfully for the first time at Ross Trevor, County Down, Northern Ireland, sometime around 1870. Little is known of the circumstances of this union or the precise provenance of the resulting tree, which is known now by the cultivar name Ross Trevor, and its place as the first of its kind has been somewhat forgotten. The much more famous occurrence of the Leyland Cypress was at Leighton Hall near Welshpool, Wales, the property of John Naylor. In 1888, seedlings were raised from a Nootka cypress growing in the grounds surrounding the hall, and six were found to differ markedly from the rest. It was not realised at the time, but the proud father of these vigorous aberrations was a Monterey cypress growing nearby. In 1889, John Naylor died, and his estate passed to his son, Christopher John. However, Christopher John's tenureship was to be short-lived, as two years later he inherited Haggerston Castle in Northumberland from his uncle, Thomas Leyland whose surname he adopted before taking up residence in his new property, bringing the strange young trees with him. Leighton Hall passed into the hands of J. Murray Naylor, Christopher John's nephew, in 1906, and in 1911 further hybrid plants were raised, this time with Monterey cypress as the maternal parent and Nootka cypress the pollinator. One of these, known simply as Clone 10, was a decidedly attractive plant with a bluish cast to the foliage, especially in the latter part of the season. However, it was not until 1955, after it had been blown down by a mini-hurricane, that it was propagated. It was called Nader's Blue, the name like those of its siblings Leighton Green and Haggerston Grey, recalling something of its beginnings. The tree that grows at Wisley was received from the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew in 1966. Since being planted, it has grown into a fine, healthy, if unassuming specimen. We should judge its merits without prejudice. James Armitage from the RHS Science Team. You can find images and more information from all of James's plant encounters on the RHS website. There you can also hear all the previous parts of the series. Go to rhs.org.uk slash Wisley Plant Encounters. Well, that's all we have time for in this edition. We'll be back in a fortnight. For now, from me, Guy Barter, and all here at Wisley, goodbye.